Hello and welcome to Quo Vadis Institute's Rethink, a podcast that will supply you with thought-provoking approaches to and reflections on some of the most challenging issues of our day. Hello and welcome to this new episode. My name is Stefania Knecht and uh, I'm a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews. And I'm here today with Dr. Stoddard, who grew up in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. And you would think that there's an immediate connection between Scotland and whiskey, but Dr. Stoddard is actually a connoisseur of craft gin. Little fun fact. Um, He was in pastoral ministry for a little over a decade, but has been mainly active in academia in the last 25 years. Um, Dr. Stoddard is a lecturer in practical theology and the Associate Director of the Center of the Study of Religion and Politics at the University of St. Andrews, which is actually where we know each other from. His main research lies in the intersection of digital technologies in general, surveillance more specifically, and theology. He's not a stranger to podcasts, and you can check out his Interfaith Dialogue series, Conversations in Practical Theology, wherever podcasts are available. During lockdown, when many of us were making sourdough bread or finishing our DIY project, Dr. Stoddard brilliantly actually used that time to finish his next book on surveillance and the common good, and it's titled The Common Gaze. And today's QVI podcast will center around questions of surveillance in relation to the COVID pandemic. Welcome, Eric, and thank you so much for being here. Um, And my first question just kind of jumps into that and says, how does the topic of surveillance intersect with theology? Thanks, Stephanie. Um, Surveillance and theology are absolutely intellect because Christian people believe that God watches. God is, in my language, the supreme surveillance agent. Now, that immediately raises a lot of people's hackles. They don't like me talking about God as a surveillance agent. (laughs) So I have a fair bit of recovery of the positive aspects of surveillance to reassure people that I'm not saying that God is a spy. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that God is out to get us. What I mean by God being a surveillance agent is that God is watching in Christian Mm -hmm. theology God is watching over people. God is watching as an act of care and as an act of love. And so Mm. Christian people, when they talk about God, they're singing about God watching over us. They're singing, excuse me, singing about God uh, keeping an eye over us. His eyes on the sparrow. It's a familiar gospel hymn for many people. The language that permeates Christian spirituality is about everything about us is known by God. And therefore, we are under God's watchful care. Now, that's a big leap from God's watchful care to technological surveillance. But I think we need to start with that fundamental view. What do we mean when we talk about God watching? Because that often shapes how, as Christian people, we watch over one another. What is our motivation for watching out for one another? All sorts of different nuances in English that are actually covered by this word to watch over surveillance in French, coming from French, coming from the French Revolution. And what we're doing is we're looking out for one another. We're taking care for one another. 
And that's a fundamental theme of Christian theology, to reflect the love of God, the watching, the caring, the looking out for. Now, of course, that gets deeply problematic in lots of different ways, but that's my starting point, that we Mm -hmm. think of, we start interrogating how we understand the way in which God watches over. And that's the language that I would then take into surveillance and use surveillance to think in both directions. What does it tell us about God? What does God's care tell us about surveillance? Mm. And what do you think uh, is actually important to think about uh, in relation to surveillance these days? What are kind of the big overarching issues that you deal with? I think the fundamental issue is who is surveillance for? Mm. Not what is surveillance for, because that, that's a question that's answered by the governments. You know, it's for national security, for corporations. It's about profit. It's about understanding customers, analyzing customers' data. So that, that's what's, what is surveillance for. Mm. Theologically, instead, I want to start with a different question. Who is surveillance for? Surveillance for one another, but not simply for one another. I want to go to the Christian tradition where there's a particular emphasis on starting with those who have got the least in society. In Roman Catholic, particularly liberation theology, there's a phrase, an emphasis about God's preferential option for those who are poor. That when we're thinking about how to distribute care, concern, needs, we have to start with those who are poorest. Mm-hmm. And I want to say, who is surveillance for? Surveillance has to start with being for those who are in most need. Mm. And, and not think, used against them. Exactly, because that's where we then get into the other questions about good surveillance, bad surveillance, right. ambiguous surveillance. We can get into a whole host of things about that, but we first have to ask that question, who is it for, rather than what is it for? We can right. get to the what later, but let's start with who is it for? Because I think that really, from a Christian theological point of view, really opens up a whole set of different questions. Right, yeah. And is there, I know this is maybe a bit too broad, but what is your stance towards surveillance in general? Like maybe both from a, like a government perspective and from a personal perspective. I think surveillance is absolutely necessary. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I think surveillance is both good and bad. Sometimes mm. it's good and bad at the very same time. Right. It's um, my friend and colleague in Canada, David Lyon, who has done a huge amount over many years on surveillance studies, uses the analogy of the Greek god Janus, or the Roman god Janus, rather, who is two-faced, where we get January right. in English yeah. from, looking forward and looking back. And he uses that as a metaphor to talk about surveillance being two-faced. It's looking in two directions. It can be good and bad at the very same time. So Mm -hmm. maybe just an example for that. If we think of surveillance putting pressure pads in the home of someone who's very elderly and frail, so that if they don't trigger the pressure pad and then that data doesn't get transmitted, those who are caring for that person can be alert that something's gone wrong. That person's not been able to get out of bed that morning. So that's surveillance. That's watching them through data and processing right. that data. Very much an act of care. Enables people to live on, on their own for longer than previously. 
But at the very same time, if family members use that technology as an excuse not to visit their elderly mother Mm. or grandmother, what's happened there? The very same surveillance, which is absolutely good and vital and contributive to that elderly lady's flourishing, is at the same time being used as an excuse for families not to visit and to Mm. fail in their role of being physically there, present and caring. So it's that sort of, that works in state surveillance, corporate surveillance, the very same thing at the same time can be both good and bad. Hmm. Moving into COVID or or the pandemic as a larger societal kind of development, um, surveillance has obviously played a huge role. Um, What are some of the insights that you've gleaned in the last couple of months when it comes to surveillance? I think here again, we're in this two-faced aspect of surveillance. Mm. Absolutely vital. We want to commend and support those health workers and public health scientists who are gathering data across the world. That's how we knew that there was a pandemic emerging. It was the result of medical public health surveillance data. The way in which we've known the, the progress of the virus the transmission rates of the virus, the progress towards a vaccine, the progress towards more effective treatments, all absolutely rely on health surveillance data. So very, very positive. But at the same time, we're seeing reports of very intrusive types of health surveillance in some Asian countries, um, not just through the use of track and trace applications, but drones in some places, Mm -hmm. very close monitoring of people's behaviour, their access to different places. In other countries, there have been huge debates around what type of track and trace apps are going to be permitted under privacy regulations. We see people being invited to snitch on their neighbours if there's a house party. So report them to the police. We're getting workplace surveillance about people's temperature coming into buildings, about students Mm. who are having events in their halls. The levels of surveillance about people's behaviour, therefore, rises hugely at the same Mm. time as there are still questions of privacy and of freedom and how we work with that in this very, very complex situation of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And do you think that this culture of surveillance has actually shifted during this pandemic or has it gotten more intense? I think cultures of surveillance are, you can talk about a culture of surveillance in the sense that nowadays there's a tendency whenever there's a social issue, a government will say we need more surveillance. Mm -hmm. If it's children's progress in school, We need more data surveilling what children are achieving in school. Mm -hmm. If there's problems with teenage pregnancy, we need more data. If there are problems of traffic congestion, we need more data. The go-to answer for everything now seems to be, let's get more data. Happens Mm. companies, it happens in people going running, gathering their own data, and that culture of we, we simply have to do more surveillance, that's the answer that we go to Mm -hmm. first of all so we see that intensified 
to a huge degree in a pandemic. Mm. Now, part of that is absolutely necessary. We need, as I say, all that surveillance data. But this is happening within an already accelerating context of surveillance is the answer. And let's get more and more surveillance. Let's get more and more data. Let's process more and more people's data and let's make Mm -hmm. money out of it. So it's not started anything. But what we usually see when there's an intensity of surveillance is that a government increases it, then it drops back at the end of the emergency, but it never drops back to where it was before. Interesting Mm -hmm. examples, the, the Olympic Games. When a city hosts the Olympic Games, the surveillance in that city and surrounding area is ramped up hugely. At the end of the Olympic Games, of course, it drops back down. The infrastructure remains there in the, the travel hubs and on premises, and the, inf- the, 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 the functions of surveillance are still possible. And so governments will tend to then keep using that. It has dropped to a different level, but it never settles back at the level it was mm. before. So using that as an analogy, I think that's what we're going to see when mm-hmm. we eventually reach the end of the pandemic. Surveillance will decrease, but it will not come back to where it was before. Right. And I think what you mentioned also about the policing, like a neighborhood control, how do you think surveillance is affecting relationships in this pandemic? Surveillance and relationships, again, it's it's two-faced because we're being encouraged, certainly during the intense lockdown, to keep an eye out for our elderly neighbours to Mm -hmm. keep an eye if someone wasn't actually able to get out to the shops if they were shielding in the weeks before there was a national system of shopping deliveries to people who were isolated rather than just Mm -hmm. having to uh, remain in home then people were being asked to keep an eye out and that's really good neighborly caring surveillance and that can Mm -hmm. be really positive for relationships especially you know when we're sometimes some of us are living around our homes in a way that we haven't done maybe ever. So we're actually interacting with our neighbours in a way that we never did before. We see them more if we're going out for a walk around our immediate area because that's all at one stage that we were allowed to go. So that can enhance relationships. But then again, it can be really detrimental to relationships if we get that. What's the boundary between legitimately reporting a concern and snitching? Right. What because, is the difference? Well, you see, that it depends. If you are the snitched upon, you're going to feel very differently than the one who is doing the snitching. Mm-hmm. So it's in the eye of the beholder. There's an element to which it's in the eye of the beholder, but I know that I, by temperament and political and theological persuasion, I'm pretty far on the sort of left wing. Mm-hmm. But during this pandemic, I feel some of the right-wing authoritarianism rising up inside me. When I see people flouting the rules and um, gathering without masks or I see them going on and off of public transport and the harassment that that causes sometimes to uh, public transport drivers who are having to get people Mm. to wear their mask. And that horrible right-wing authoritarianism bit that is I discovered in me as I say, it comes to the surface. And it. if I illustrate it this way, in sur- surveilling one another 
can be really an act of care, but it can also be an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it can be our displaced fear at what's happening in the pandemic. And who do we take it out on? We take it out on our neighbours by right. intrusive watching. And mm-hmm. I think we have to be conscious of the psychology of the pandemic and our experience of it. Because if we are frightened and we're anxious, that's going to come out somewhere. Does mm-hmm. it come out in our attitude to our neighbours and our reporting mm-hmm. people? Some people do need to be reported. Right. But, again, let's think more carefully about what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And also I think this this lack of control that you one feels uh, over the situation and then having to feel or maybe – project that control onto somebody else in the sense like if I can't control the pandemic at least I can control my neighbors <laughs> absolutely and and this this is where surveillance studies rather than just a, a, a technolo- technological studies is really important because mm. as a wider field surveillance studies incorporates criminologists philosophers theologians uh, psychologists as well as computer scientists and sociologists and that's i think for me the importance of surveillance studies in that it gets us to some of these social questions and social Mm -hmm. psychological questions as well as issues of privacy and legality because that's only one tiny angle on the whole of surveillance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I mean, here in the UK, we have a track and trace app. Uh, no, not a track and trace app. We have an app and we have track and trace. Um, what would you say to people who are hesitant or skeptic of either complying with track and trace or participating in using the app? Um, would you have any advice? Yeah, I think it, it's worth noting that in the UK, we actually have, is it four different apps because Scotland, Northern Ireland, <laughs> Wales and England all have different apps. Okay. Um, now, the original plan in England was to design an app that was a more centralised gathering of information and then that was abandoned. And in England, the contact uh, app is now based on the Google and Apple system, which is the one that Scotland has gone for, where all the information is held on your own phone and it's it's done by proximity, so there's there's no central database that gathers mm-hmm. that information. So I think on those terms, we've 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 avoided certainly in England that very bad privacy angle right. on the app okay. by going for this new one. And I think I would certainly encourage people to download in whichever jurisdiction they are the app. In other countries, most, I think, of the European countries have gone for the one that is the decentralized model. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in other countries, there are going to be questions about the types of app. But certainly in the UK, whichever is your your, your national app, I would encourage people to download it because mm-hmm. this is not a compromise on privacy. Uh, the mm-hmm. way in which this information is stored. This is something that we can do for one another. Back to that mm-hmm. crucial preposition about surveillance, surveillance for each other to right. help protect one another. To mm-hmm. It may not make an awful lot of difference to me if I'm not out and about very much, but it can help other people. 
and mm-hmm. that's I think the angle that we we need to take. And do you have any recommendations in general and about how people can think differently about surveillance during this pandemic? I think we using that Christian theological idea of a preferential option for those who are poor. I've argued in the book that's coming out in January 21 for a preferential optic for those who are poor. And I'm just playing with that word option and using optic as the language of vision and seeing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, We're really thinking about how, how does surveillance during the pandemic disproportionately affect those who are at the bottom of or lower down the economic, social economic health um, ladder. And those people need to be our first concern. Now, of course, our concern is for everyone, but let's set set out sort of like a triage and say, if we're going to ask questions about um, uh, contact apps and track and trace, if we're going to talk about health surveillance data, let's make sure that this is for, first and foremost, those who are most vulnerable, whether that's economically or medically or socially Mm -hmm, or politically. Then we can start dealing with the other aspects later on. But let's mm-hmm. ask this first question, who's being most disproportionately affected negatively by mm-hmm. surveillance? Because that's really one of the big features of surveillance outside a pandemic. Pandemic, It's never equally distributed across society. Mm-hmm. It can be on grounds of race, can be on, on grounds of social economic status. Surveillance is disproportionate. So the issue, I think, for those of us with in, in surveillance studies is to ask and to encourage people to be asking how are these different surveillance practices disproportionately disadvantaging those who are mm-hmm. lower down in socioeconomic medical whatever it may be that those who are more medically vulnerable we actually need to say okay we will encourage more surveillance for their sake right but it's a different question than about my individual privacy rights. Those mm-hmm. are important, but I don't think theologically those are, that's the first place to run to. Mm. Do you have an example for that? Uh, maybe even in the UK context? In terms of, I'm not quite sure. Um, example in you're terms asking. of what that would look like practically. I mean, you said like with, for example, the um, a certain medically disadvantaged community may need extra surveillance. So, just asking if there's an example of how that what that could look like. I think one of the big issues at the start of the pandemic, certainly in the UK, was the discovery that people, uh, black and minority ethnic groups what seemed to be for some reason that was unknown at the time disproportionately susceptible mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. covid now that then becomes a crucial issue as was happening investigations into why that was happening initially mm-hmm. rumors that well maybe this was something genetic probably not as far as i can understand not at all to do with genetics seems to be to do with social circumstances and this then alerts us to some of the questions of this isn't maybe about ethnicity 
This is about social economic status. And mm-hmm. is that then something that we need to look more widely across society and say, actually, this has alerted us to an issue that if you are in a certain socioeconomic situation, you are going to be more vulnerable to COVID. Mm-hmm. And what surveillance needs to be in place to protect people who can't afford to isolate, who can't afford right. to withdraw into their homes in the way that some of us have the privilege of being able to do so. Mm. And how often health is actually directly related to socioeconomic conditions, mm. housing conditions, employment conditions. Um, and that raises all those questions about gathering the surveillance data to be able mm. to see who is most vulnerable, not just medically, but what lies behind some of those medical things. Dangers, of course, as soon as there was talk about maybe some ethnic genetic element to it, that gets extremely problematic. And avoiding discrimination and all the language that has gone with a right-wing agenda of prejudice and really just holding tight and saying, let's let's work through this and say, okay, Mm -hmm. Let's dispense with that aspect of it because that's not been proven, but it shows us still that vulnerability and social economic conditions. And then that faces us with the societies and that, that say, well, why in our society are certain people far more socially vulnerable and economically vulnerable? And mm-hmm. what, what do we then do about that as a society? So the longer term mm-hmm. message for us as we go through and hopefully emerge eventually from the pandemic what are these social economic findings that we have been confronted with? Hmm. What are we going to do about them as a society? Are we going to again turn our back on those who are facing structural injustice? That's why they're getting sick more severely. Hmm. It's not because of anything that they've done. It's because of the structural economic and social circumstances that the rest of us in society are willing to just let happen. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much, Eric, for those thoughts and your insights. Um, I think we're coming to the end of this episode, but um, this was hugely helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Covadis Institute's podcast, Rethink. Join us next time for another episode with Dr. Eric Stoddard on surveillance and the Black Lives Matter movement.